This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word which challenges us, convicts us, encourages us, inspires us. Lord, give us all ears to hear what you may have for each one of us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's anything in what I say that would be chaff, would you just blow that away? If there are things that need to take deep root, would you do that by your Spirit? In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing with our focus on Ephesians. There's just one more week left in this series next Sunday. And today we encounter teaching from St. Paul about marriage. And what I hope to show you this morning is that his teaching is profound, radical, challenging, and absolutely life-giving. Now, given the text before us, I will unashamedly be talking a lot about marriage. But Paul's teaching is super helpful and important to those who are not married also. Indeed, the very first sentence of our reading from Ephesians, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is pertinent for all of us. You may recall the Apostle Paul's fondness for long sentences. And where our reading began this morning is actually the end of a sentence that began in verse 18. And there Paul had said, Be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as you give thanks to God at all times, and, verse 21, as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's helpful to see, therefore, that Paul's teaching to wives and husbands is totally dependent upon their being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking specifically to Christians about how they are to go about being married and in the wider context of being fellow members in the body of Christ, in the church. But before digging into what St. Paul has to say about all of this, I want us to take note of the historical and cultural setting of this letter. The Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing was one where, by law, the man was the absolute authority in the household. He ruled over his wife, over his children, and over his slaves. One prominent Greek statesman of that time wrote this, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the context that he was writing. And so the fact that the man was the head of the household was just a given. That was the way things were. And while I should imagine there were marriages that were loving and kind and families where children were cherished, the big picture was pretty ugly and aggressively patriarchal. That context, then, 
Paul's writings here are extraordinary. They're radical. And for those who would have heard this letter read out for the first time, what he has to say here must have been absolutely jaw-dropping. Now, sadly, there are those who have used and abused this text to subjugate women and claim that the Bible teaches that men have some God-given hierarchical ruling role in the family. But I have to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth of the message of the gospel and the message of St. Paul in this passage. The only way that we're going to make sense of this this morning is to take in the huge impact of how it begins. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. For St. Paul, every aspect of our family and work life is redefined in relation to Christ rather than to any stereotypes or cultural norms we may have grown up with. In this chapter as a whole, he addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. But we're focusing on the first piece. But for the Christian, every aspect of our lives, whether we're married or single, older or younger, an employee or an employer, need to be lived out of reverence for Christ. To be subject to one another is a statement of mutuality. It's not lordship or rulership or any other way of being and relating that involves one person bossing another person around or one person being in obedient servitude to another. Again, I think it's important that we hear this and receive this in the context of being filled with the Spirit, which is what Paul longs for and prays for for the church. The charge to be subject could be a recipe for reducing people to being doormats, and that's not what Paul's teaching. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy this morning, by the way, but I just wanted to set that up. And in reverence for Christ literally means out of fear for Christ. God is not tame or nice or a sort of Santa Claus figure. He's holy. Eugene Peterson writes, a God without holy mystery is not a God to worship on our knees, but a cheap idol to be used on demand. Well, when I was a, a younger man, I, I really wrestled with this passage from Ephesians. I was thinking about getting married, I was at seminary, and this teaching about headship really bothered me. What does headship in marriage mean? What should it look like? And I was frankly tempted to ignore this passage, but I couldn't. I was also quite troubled at the way some of my male friends viewed headship at the time as if male hierarchy was somehow a gift from God, from creation, which it just frankly isn't. I'd be happy to spend as long as you like with you another time to unpack that further. But what I discovered as I read and studied and wrestled and prayed over this was quite an epiphany. I believe that in this passage, St. Paul turns headship on its head. I remember distinctly feeling that it was as if God, through St. Paul, was saying to me, you want to know about headship, Jonathan? I'll tell you what it's about. It's not what you think it is. It's not about who's going to have the final say in a disagreement. It's not about who's in charge of your home. It's not about your authority. No, the whole business of headship is quite literally turn 
on its head. Here's how. Paul, you'll note, compares the role of the husband to that of Christ. And of course, Christ is the head of the church. But note, it is not to Christ's lordship, Christ's authority, Christ's power, Christ's rule, all of which are rightly his and his alone, that Paul is using this analogy. Rather, it is to Christ's humility and love and service and submission, which we see also in Christ. That is what the husband is called to emulate. Husbands, you want to know how to be the head of your wife? I'll I'll tell you, says Paul. You're to love her as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? Well, he laid down his life for her. And that, brothers, is how we are to love our wives, or future wives, if you're not yet married. You might say, well, that's all very well, but the text clearly says, wives, be subject to your husbands, as it does. It's worth mentioning there's no verb in that sentence in the original language. The verb is in the sentence before, which is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But yes, wives, submit to your husbands as you submit to the Lord. But to make it abundantly clear what this doesn't mean, Paul goes on to say to the husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as you love yourself. Love your wife and put her first so that she may be all that God has made her to be. Lay down your life for her sake. Go the extra mile again and again. Biblical, godly headship is never about lording it over, being the boss, being the ruler. This is radical teaching. It is also fabulous teaching. It is beautiful and inspiring and Oh, that every marriage looked like this. What does it look like in your marriage? Or in the marriages of those you're close to? St. Paul turns headship on its head. And he describes this way of being married as a great mystery. And he says, I'm applying it to Christ and his church. So in the midst of this teaching about marriage, Paul is reminding us as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as church family, that this mutual submission out of reverence for Christ is what should characterize all our relationships with one another. And so this is what it looks like when God is gathering all things together in Christ. It's radical, it's wonderful, and it extends into every possible area of our lives, including our marriages, and into all family relationships. You see, what's happening here is an illustration of how God is reversing the effects of the fall. Now, supremely, that happens in Jesus' victory over the power of death on the cross and the hope and promise of resurrection to all who believe and trust in him. And specifically, the reversal of the fall turns headship on its head. It's about making things new. The whole creation is groaning. I wonder, perhaps nowhere more so in our day than in marriages, families, and across the board in human relationships. 
And it's precisely here that we see this restoration, this reordering. All the ways that sin spoils and damages marriages are challenged by this radical message of mutual submission, love, grace, and service. You know, in the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, there was complete at oneness and mutuality. At last, flesh of my flesh, soul of my soul. Adam did not rule over Eve. Not initially. That came later, after the fall. It wasn't long. You only have to go to chapter 3. And then it was, ru- it was ruined. It's part of the curse. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's a bad thing. In Christ, the curse is being reversed. As Paul writes elsewhere, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And as you listen to this this morning, I wonder what relationships have been uh, coming into your mind, perhaps your own or a friend's marriage. But I believe there's a challenge and there's grace for us, for all of us, in these verses. For those who are single or married, Paul holds out this wonderful vision of how marriage can be. And you know, we're not meant to settle for anything less. You know, weddings usually are occasions of great joy and eager expectation. And oh, believe me, I know they can be uh, ridiculously stressful as well, but that's okay. But I want you today to catch a fresh glimpse of the beauty and the wonder that marriage can be when husbands and wives love and serve each other as Paul teaches us. I want to read to you, I want you to listen to some of the words that are spoken to all who are gathered at the start of the Anglican service of holy matrimony. This is just an extract. But the priest says this, The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind was ordained by God for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord, for mutual joy and for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, to maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ and for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom in family, church and society to the praise of his holy name. Talk about a lofty calling. In our passage this morning we also see St. Paul summarizing the consistent biblical teaching about marriage. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Would you please note the order of that? Leaving, cleaving, becoming one flesh. Sadly, that's often not the order that is followed by so many today. And so for the Christian, becoming one flesh, specifically having sexual relations, 
is reserved unequivocally and absolutely for marriage. For marriage between a man and a woman. This is not novel teaching. This is biblical teaching. And many, perhaps many here even, struggle with this teaching. Perhaps you don't like it. Perhaps you don't agree with it. Perhaps it's inconvenient. Perhaps it seems so hard to follow. Perhaps it's because it runs so counter to our culture. Just as all of this mutual submission ran so countercultural to the dominant, aggressive patriarchy of the Greco-Roman world, the pendulum has swung completely to the other way. And now we're finding, oh, this is now countercultural this teaching about marriage and the place of intimacy. So it's very challenging. Jesus promises us that he will not let us be tempted beyond that which we're able to bear. That he will always show us the way of escape. And so I want those who are perhaps struggling with uh, sexual temptation this morning to hear that. There is another way. And I also want to be sure that all of us hear the gospel this morning. The good news of love and grace in the midst of teaching that can be hard. Paul is talking about the way things are meant to be for those who love God. For those who are filled with the Spirit and are committed to following Jesus in this way of radical unselfish love in marriage. And we all fall short of that. And we all need humbly, to repent where we're in the wrong. But the one who is the Lord, the boss, the ruler, to whom every Christian must submit, is Jesus. Jesus, who is so gracious, loving, kind, understanding, forgiving. You know, unlike the men of his day, Jesus had no problem spending time with women, um, which again was countercultural, but specifically like the woman at the well, a woman who was living with someone to whom she wasn't married. On another occasion, Jesus did not condemn a woman dragged before him, having been caught in adultery, which, by the way, is oh so telling of the attitude of her accusers. Where's the guy? Well, they hadn't bothered to bring him. And faced with all of this, Jesus shows love and compassion. And he always speaks the truth in love. Doing doing both of those is so difficult. We want to have the love because it's hard to say the truth. Or we're all about the truth and never mind what anyone feels. So at the end of that vignette of Jesus with this woman caught in adultery, having not condemned her, His last words to her are, go and sin no more. Truth and love. To those here this morning who are married and who would claim Christ as your Lord, hear afresh these life-giving words to you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Renew your commitment to Jesus and to your husband. Submit to Christ as your Lord and 
submit to your husband in the way Paul teaches us this morning. Husbands, renew your commitment to Jesus and submit to him as your Lord and love your wife as Christ loved the church. Take heed of Paul's life-giving words. And if you need help, ask for it. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of wisdom. Well, before I finish, I want to just look briefly at that Old Testament passage this morning where we saw Joshua standing before the people on the brink of going into the Promised Land and he charged them with that choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. And it's a question we all face every day in a myriad of ways. Will we put our trust in God or ourselves? Will we obey his word or be a law unto ourselves? Now, the Israelites were quick to pledge their allegiance to the Lord. Actually, too quick. You see, making choices and following through on promises made are two different matters. And many of those then who so boldly swore allegiance to the Lord that day, when they were all gathered together, proved not to be true to their word. And it's the same in Jesus' time. Many of those who followed Jesus didn't stay the course. We saw that in our Gospel reading from John 6. Many of the disciples were saying, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, in the face of that, this is hard teaching, you might have thought Jesus would have said, well, let me explain it more clearly for you so that you can get it. But what he actually says in verse 61 is, does this offend you? Is what I'm saying offensive? You see, oftentimes the things that Jesus taught, the things we find in Holy Scripture, well, they are, they are rather offensive to our ears, our sensibilities. We don't like it. And of course, ultimately, Jesus taught that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that there was no way to God except through him. And when many of those in his day said, well, this teaching is difficult, they weren't saying, this is hard to understand. No, they were saying, this is hard to accept. And many of those who followed Jesus must have started to understand that Jesus was claiming to be God. These weren't just good ideas. Good ideas for living your life. Good ideas for being happily married. Good, No, no. This is the Son of God. You read in verse 66 that many of his disciples actually turned back and no longer wanted to follow him. You know, there's a certain irony in being a Christian. In one sense, it costs absolutely nothing. The Bible teaches that the free gift of God is eternal life. And yet, in another sense, it costs everything. Because Jesus also said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And of course, it cost God, his own son, Jesus, to die in our place. Well, at the end of this vignette in John, Jesus says to the twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter, you can always rely on, on Peter, says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, I've, I've often felt that way in all kinds of circumstances when actually I, I wish there were another way than what the Bible teaches. I wish there was something I could do differently and then it's, a, but where else am I going to go? To whom can I turn but the author of life 
and giver of salvation. You have the words of eternal life, says Paul. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, our our teaching this morning about marriage and singleness is hard. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. And yet it's also life-giving. A recipe for for joy, a mutual love, a picture of Christ's love for the church. It's fabulous. But it's also about the whole family of God. It, It speaks to all of us. Just take a moment to reflect on whom you will serve this day. And particular, particularly reflect, reflect on that question in relation to our relationships. Whom will you serve? Will you serve God living a chaste life in singleness and of sacrificial love and service in marriage? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this picture of marriage today. Thank you that you have made us in your image, male and female, as your body here in this place comprised of many who are single and many who are married, we acknowledge that we fall short of your call to follow you in this area of our most important relationships. Where we have faltered and sinned, where we have hurt others, where we have been selfish, where we have not followed your ways, we are truly sorry. Lord, cleanse us, forgive us, and empower us by your Spirit to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.